This is Writers Not Writing, the show where you can get to know your favorite writers and soon-to-be favorite writers by listening to them confess to the ways they procrastinate. Thanks for procrastinating with us. I'm Benjamin Gorman, and the quiet guy behind the glass there is Doug the producer. I write novels and collections of poetry and stuff. Doug tries his best to make me sound better. And each week we have a secret word to listen for. If you catch it, you earn the right to take an extra break at the time of your choosing from whatever is stressing you out. From Not A Pipe Publishing, welcome to Writers Not Writing. Today's phrase is Kurt Vonnegut. Welcome, everyone. Today's guest is Adina Mignona. Uh, Adina is a physicist and astronomer by degree, working in aerospace uh, as a mission architect, which just means she's been doing it so long they had to give her a fun title. More importantly, she has a longtime science fiction geek with a strong desire to inspire others through speaking and writing about robots, aliens, artificial intelligence, computers, longevity, exoplanets, virtual reality, and more. She writes science fiction novels, uh, including the Robot Galaxy series and her new standalone novel, Lunar Logic, which is available as of January 16th. So just came out or just will come out It's very soon. Uh, she also loves spending her uh, time with her fellow co-hosts of the Big Sci-Fi Podcast, which I have enjoyed. That is a good one. Um, so welcome, Adina. How's it going today? Great. Thank you for having me here. Uh, I, am, I have been excited to have you on. So first thing, uh, we always dress up in costume like this. Mm -hmm. uh, tell the podcast listeners who can't see our cool costumes on YouTube, what is it you chose to wear today? Well, I, I decided that right now I am I am Brother Adina from the Church of the Galactic Spirit from the Foundation series. And so, of course, I am dressed accordingly in their nice red robey things <laughs> that they wear. The costumes on that show, the the kind of the visuals in general on that show have been really everything about that show. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Uh, I, I really like to think that if Asimov lived to see that, he'd be super pleased with I, with I think how so this too. I think out. he would you know, I know I know the you know people critique the way that it is it is mm -hmm. so much more expansive in terms of hey, it's not all white men, but mm -hmm. I think Asimov would be like, and it looks gorgeous. And these actors I, yeah, I think he'd like it. I hope he'd like that. Yep. Yep. I, I think he, you know, I don't think he's the kind of person who would have been upset with the whole taking it, you know, into what modern is. I think he was very much just a product, simply a product of his time. And if he was a product of our time, it would have been fine. So I think he would have been uh, immensely pleased with what he saw. Everything, you know, about him struck me as someone who, if you took his property, yeah, of course, properly licensed, of course, he was happy for people to expand on what he did he didn't have that feeling like oh my god if you if you change a word the universe is going to collapse i think With he was very uh, uh i robot the film version mm -hmm. they made of i robot where they changed mm -hmm. the ending to make it yeah most anti-asimov message i think he would have just yeah oh yeah. come on that's not the way i see the world but i can also totally understand why hollywood was going you know a, mm -hmm. a, a movie about how robots are superior to humans and humans really are mm -hmm. not great might not sell well so we have to right. have this you know human emotions and stuff and asimov would have been like no human emotions suck like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> although i really enjoyed um bicentennial man Yes. With Robin Williams. Yes. That was such a lovely movie. And again, not t entirely holding true to the story of Bicentennial Man, of course, but enough of the elements. And I, I, again, I, I was super happy with the result. I think he would have been too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's well, that, And that's true. And also would have liked to see it done well. I mean, I think that's, mm -hmm. you know, I think any author would go, okay, you made some changes, but uh, it, it did. Mm -hmm. you know, it, it, yes. it did come out well. Well, I went with a, a similar thing. So folks who are watching can see this. I went with the Emperor Cleon robe armor. So it's like armor, but the purple robe. And mm -hmm. uh, I can tell you, I just do not look as good as that actor. Uh, I never will. Uh, it's just... <laughs> What is his name? Uh, Ali Pace. I am not, uh, mm -hmm. I, you know, any, anybody who is listening, if you're just listening to the podcast, pretend I look like Lee Pace. Let's just go with that. Mm -hmm. In your head, decide from now on, whenever you hear my voice, I look like Lee Pace. Uh, and that would be mm -hmm. really a, a huge improvement for me. Um, and I have to say, I'm super impressed with him and the actors that play Dawn and Dusk as well, because yes. they're playing different characters in each iteration. 
and they're the same, yet they're different. And it's, it's just, just fascinating rhythm. to see that work. And to me, that that's just such a, a skill that yeah. is just amazing to me. I'm, I'm yeah, blown away like by everything clones, about that series. Uh, folks who've not watched it, these are clones of one another who are different ages and also mm -hmm. We, we learn slight variations. And so these actors have to be the same person at a different age as this other actor. And then over the course of time, we realize, oh, and they are a little bit different. And they've done mm -hmm. a great job, those, those actors, of giving us, you know, how how would the same human being, but at a different age, respond to this mm -hmm. the same stimuli? And they're, yes, they're very, very yes. smart at that. So, so I've been excited to have you on to hear about this new book. This Lunar Logic mm -hmm. is about to drop. Tell everybody about yep. Lunar Logic and, and what this is, oh, uh, what, what this entails. Yeah, so Lunar Logic, it takes place on the, like in the title, on, on the moon about 100 years from now. And my main characters are uh, sentient AI, sentient robots. And at first it starts out, they don't know anything about humans or why they're there. They're just doing what they are quote unquote programmed and they don't even they don't recognize that and of course some little things happen to disturb their world and then they start asking questions and you know deep philosophical questions and figure stuff out and so it is um you know i i wrote it in response to i had listened to a book called uh, it was one of the great courses books mm. i think people, some people know about the great courses it was called sci-fi fi being for philosophy mm. And I came away with that. And, and, and the author there discussed, you know, uh, the Matrix and all these different, you know, uh, things in science fiction that come out as kind of philosophical, you know, discussions. And I came away from that wanting to write a book that would be worthy of having been included in a discussion like that. So oh, that's, that's cool. where this 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 was. And I'll just say the first iteration, my first original draft was incredibly dark, but I lightened it up. So there's like minimal violence. There's no cursing. Um, it's for adults, but I call it, it's, you know, safe for kids. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I love that. I mean, I was a philosophy major undergrad and, you know, Thanks. and a sci-fi fan and the two, I mean, frequently mm -hmm. going, oh, and yes. the, the person who best explores this idea, this, you know, Kantian idea is, uh, you know, the, the Wachowskis or, uh, mm -hmm. you know, a, a, a you know, we would explore other, I remember in a textbook, they said the, mm -hmm. the best way to really understand nihilism is to read uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Like it is the, <laughs> uh, uh, that Me. kind of absurdist nihilism mm -hmm. is best expressed through, you know, there, 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 there's, there's no point, make a sandwich. Like, <laughs> um, which uh, if folks yep. have not read the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series, read it. it Must will, read, yes. It's not just funny, although it is laugh out loud funny, but it really mm -hmm. is thought provoking. So yeah, mm -hmm. I, I, I am, I, I love that kind of thing. It's interesting that, you know, in sci-fi, there's this distinction between hard and soft sci-fi that, that readers mm -hmm. might not understand. And I, I, I think the terms are, are unfortunate. It's hard science or soft science fiction. Mm -hmm. And so right. what you've got is something that is very intellectually challenging. It's just the soft sciences part. It's mm -hmm. a philosophical book that is fiction. Uh, that and that is so up my alley. But I, was that there's was there some tension there for you being somebody who's you know actually knows your astrophysics to go okay? But this is not going to be a book about astrophysics. It is a book about right. you know AI and how they would learn to conceptualize themselves. Right. Well. So I really decided that I don't care for the term hard science fiction in general, because I think it really is, does a disservice to science fiction that wouldn't traditionally be called hard science fiction. Yes. You know, so if I take my books as an example, and I and I have another series called the Robot Galaxy series, which similar, uh, there's sentient robots. But what I try to do is then, I have the things that are somewhat absurd. Like, so in the Robot Galaxy series, there are there's sentient alien robots. So if you took like R2-D2 and WALL-E and all the fun, lovable robots and mush them into one, that, that's what you have, which is in some ways kind of completely absurd. But then when I have my human characters and they're here in our solar system, I even though it's a couple hundred years in the future, I do everything I can to make it as... I'm going to say believable-ish as possible. It's still science fiction, but like I don't do anything that completely breaks 
what we know. Like, so the aliens have faster than light travel and they just do. We don't explain it. We don't say anything about it. But we, quote, unquote, we, the humans, we don't. We have a more realistic projection of where we're going to be for that. So that's to me how I blend it. And when I go back and I think, you know, like, so Arthur C. Clarke, who was a huge proponent of this is what science fiction is and anything, you know, and it's hard science fiction. Everything else is fantasy or science fantasy. He took a very hard line. So we we typically tend to think of him and his stuff as hard science fiction. But uh, for, for my podcast recently, we, we rewatched 2001. And as I'm watching it, I'm like, yes, similar to what I've done. Some of this would be considered, quote unquote, hard science fiction. But when you add in his aliens and the sentient AI... No, it's not. It, it's really not completely 100% hard science fiction. So then I feel better. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I, one of my novels is about artificial intelligence programs asking that question of, are we are we sentient? And how mm-hmm. would a, 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 an AI program even do it? And so I, mm-hmm. but, but similarly, I tried to set it in a setting that is plausible. The, the challenge for me was, uh, the, the I, what I did was I retold uh, Shakespeare's The Tempest. And mm-hmm. so I was thinking, where would we have a an artificial intelligence program that would be powerful enough to be smart enough to be doing this? And I thought in our mm-hmm. kind of corporate world, this would be the 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 artificial intelligence program of a bank. Like that's where mm-hmm. we are investing our our you know computing power. Uh, yeah. And so which is convenient for me as the writer, because instead of Prospero, <laughs> I could imagine a a bank naming their artificial intelligence program Prosper. And Prosper mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. becomes this. Okay, you know, there you go. Am I, am I truly self-aware? How do I know I'm truly self-aware? And the conclusion mm-hmm. that he comes to is, if my daughter, in this version, Memoranda, if Memoranda has autonomy, then I have created someone who is distinct from me and is not a copy mm-hmm. of me. But how do I know she's truly free and how do I know she's making her own choices? And and so that becomes the the kind of linchpin, uh, which right. dovetails with uh, the, the, the Shakespearean story. You know, he wants his daughter mm-hmm. to do something that he is presenting to her he does not want her to do. Uh, and so uh, that, that, that was fun to play with. But I think that is absolutely soft sci-fi in the sense that we're asking psychological and philosophical questions mm-hmm. Rather yeah. than how does AI work? Like I'm not a programmer, right. but you know, right. how can we translate this to humans? And and I think you're absolutely right. I think you know, even 2001, which is a hallmark of you know of hard sci-fi. It's all about you know space travel. No, it's asking how would humans get along with a robot mm-hmm. that seems to have gone rogue? Seems to have gone rogue. How do you even know if the robot has gone rogue? And and that's a mm-hmm. psychological question. So, yeah, that's that's yeah. a really good point. It's it's soft science fiction in that sense, which does not mean easy. <laughs> it well, does it not, right. It doesn't mean any, so like this distinction, you know, hard and soft, that's why I'm not a fan of it anymore, because what does it really tell you? Not, not so much. Yeah. So in Lunar Logic, in the new book, again, I've got sentient robots and stuff, you know, and they're, they're ones that are born out of us in theory, but and again, do I really believe we're going to have in 100 years sentient robots or AI? Uh, no, actually, I, I don't. But everything else that I do on the the lunar surface is a projection of what I think is technically possible over the next hundred years. And in fact, I do make laws of physics, you know, yes. Yeah. And and laws, you know, within the, the, the known laws of physics and within also kind of some extrapolations of technology, I made a couple assumptions in that we don't actually make a lot of progress in yeah. the next hundred years, which kind of makes things easier and is at some point not too difficult to accept because at some point if people are like, yeah, we don't want to fund this anymore. We don't want to like, right. then yes, there won't be much. Because you know, at one point, um, one of my beta readers had pointed out because they're in a lunar rover. The humans are in a lunar rover that isn't that large. It's like the size of a minivan. And they're, I, I think they pointed out, I was like, well, won't, wouldn't they have like roomier stuff? And I'm like, and I was thinking about that, like, no, because actually it's it's very expensive to do it. Yes. So why would they, why would any, and even over the next hundred years, why would anybody? So at somewhere in it, I kind of snuck in about some bits about how stuff hasn't really advanced and, you know, it's, it's not too dissimilar from where we are. I was listening to another conversation, uh, a podcast on uh, the Slate Money podcast, where they were talking mm-hmm. about the improvements to the iPhone over time. And mm-hmm. they were making the, this point that, you know, the, the, the 
price point has not changed dramatically, unlike your your uh, uh, you know large screen TV, which is a thousand percent cheaper than when it came out. Mm -hmm. but, but the, I'm very upset about that. I spent right, a lot of money on TV uh, a decade ago, yes, and they are just you know you can get them for you know a hundred dollars now. But mm -hmm. the iPhone has maintained its price because its powers are an order of magnitude, two orders of magnitude greater mm -hmm. in terms of. But what it can do has not dramatically changed. It can take pictures, yeah. it can, you know, and and so I think that, that, you know, the way that we track the way technology will advance is it's going to be fits and starts, not because we're incapable of improving technology, but because mm -hmm. things get good enough at what we want them to do. And I can totally mm -hmm. imagine your robots like they're good enough for government work, like they do the yep. job. And so they don't <laughs> need to be better than that. Not because we can't improve mm -hmm. the technology, because we don't need to after a certain point. It does what we need it to do. There needs to be some motivation, you know, often economical motivation yeah. for any any technology. Any technology development is generally driven by some form of economic motivation. And if that isn't there, then it's going to stall. I mean, look, look what where we are just today in getting back to the moon versus where we are you know, where we were in the 60s and early 70s. And uh, one of my other favorite shows right now is For All Mankind, although I'm not 100% up to date on that. That's no a harder show to that's a harder show to watch because my husband and I are supposed to watch it together and finding the time to like watch a show together when we're both like, because I, I want to be awake for that. I don't want to be like falling asleep. I want to be awake. So. I totally, uh, my partner and I were like, there are shows we're watching together, but it, not only do we both have to be awake, our schedules have to match. And also, mm -hmm. are we both in the mood? Oh, today was a right. day. I'm not ready for right. that. Right, exactly. So so I'm a little behind on For All Mankind, even though it is con entirely amazing and you can completely, you know, someone in the industry, uh, it's it's hurts my head how much I can believe that this mm. was an alternate path. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, well, that, and that's good to hear. Like that, you know, I I know that I've I've been interested in that one anyway. But I'm thinking, okay, if you're saying that is plausible, you know, that they've really been thoughtful about that. That mm -hmm. uh, that that. You know, oh, I think so, absolutely. And now again, I'm still uh, in the timeline of the show. I think it's still the late '80s or so. But what they had done, and again, it, it's you look at the what what motivated them and what drove them. You know, just little tweaks in the reality and what happened in the 1960s drove a whole different path. But again, everything about it is uh, very plausible to me. The, the biggest difference that I see in reality versus that show is NASA's risk posture. Mm. In the show, they were willing to take more risks, which means you can do things quicker than you can. And you, know, you can do things cheaper and quicker if you're willing to take more risk. Uh, that's to me the big difference. You know, right now, and as far as I've been in, in the, you know, in the aerospace industry, NASA is very, very, very risk adverse, especially when it comes to human lives. Yeah. And that drives costs and schedule, um, you know, beyond all else. And of course, you know, we didn't have the after we did, because we were the first on the moon, that whole idea of competition died down. And again, you can imagine that that would have still fueled some of our desire to go. But oh, yes, another just great show. How much of that risk aversion do you think is a reaction to the challenger? Like, was that, you know, mm -hmm. so, you know, horrifying and, and terrifying as far as not just the loss, but, the you know, the PR, the threat to funding, the threat to kind of NASA's existence mm -hmm. that they just became yeah. really cautious? Well, but they were cautious even before, yeah, sure you know, but a... then they came, they came, you know, more cautious. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that had a lot to do, you know, a lot to do with it. And again, yes, every... Uh, just everything, you know, my experience working on missions that have, you know, tangentially related to the the space station. Um, yeah, NASA cares very, very, very deeply about the health and safety of their astronauts. So and that that drives so much of what we do, so much do of what we do. That will incline them to say there's still so much we can do without human beings there, you know, a lot more uh, unmanned stuff because it's, you just don't have the same safety concerns. Yes. We spent mm -hmm. 20 billion on this, uh, you know, on, on this thing, but it didn't, no human died when it crashed. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's definitely a balance because I think, um, you know, a lot of folks, you know, scientists recognize the value of, you know, human eyes and human senses kind of in situ. So there's certainly a balance to be had there. Um, and, and again, I, and I think generally, you know, NASA understands that balance, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of people do. So yeah. do as much as you can robotically, but we do need to get boots on the ground at some point. <laughs> well, yeah, but, and I think there's also this other uh, kind of element, which is not 
purely scientific, which is, you know, if the person, the human being comes home and is a hero, uh, that's mm -hmm. PR, you know, and the PR yeah. translates then into, you know, uh, in, in, into funding and, and more exploration. Mm -hmm. And so yep. that, that, you know, uh, a balance of, you know, maybe we could have sent a robot, but it's nice to humanize the, the, the exploration mm -hmm. of space. Uh, and, yep. and, and yet we want to do so safely. That's, that's, yep. uh, and, and, Part of that PR also is in inspiring the next generation right. of people to go into any kind of field that supports, you know, space exploration, which is a, you know, a lot of people think it's traditionally just, just aerospace engineering, and it is not. I speak to a lot of high school kids, and one of the things that I've been telling them lately, especially when, when you look at, so the Artemis is the term for the mission that encompasses all of the bits and pieces that are going to get NASA back to the moon, you get us back to the moon and then on to Mars. And they have published like a whole list of objectives and, and you know, different kinds of like science objectives and, and technology objectives. And when you look at those and break those down and think about what the needs are in terms of like the the workforce that are that are needed for that. What I tell the high school students is whatever you're interested in, there is an overlay of that with space exploration. Medical stuff, yep, space exploration. Civil engineering to like build and construct stuff, you know, any kind of engineer. And again, the engineering, computer science, that's obvious. But all the other things, food science, what astronauts are going to eat and how they're going to sustain is important. Uh, so obviously all the biological sciences, how they're, you know, the suits that they're going to wear and the clothing that they're going to wear and materials for that. And it has to be like a set of, you know, form, function and all that stuff. So there was one kid I talked to who was really interested in fashion. And I was like, well, look, there's a there's an overlay of that. You know, so whatever you're interested in, arts, because communicating everything that NASA does and, and the vision of space exploration is important. So just whatever you want to do, there is an overlay of that with space exploration. I, I have had this debate uh, multiple times with people who are saying, how can we invest in, in this when we have so many needs here on Earth? And I say, mm -hmm. you don't go to Mars for Mars. You go mm -hmm. to Mars because of what you will learn that will improve life on Earth. You mm -hmm. know, look at the, the the person who is, you know, as we are having this argument, the person who is uh, going by in their wheelchair is able to do so in a lightweight wheelchair because we went to the moon. The fact mm -hmm. that you know, we could be having this debate on the computer, on our mm -hmm. phones, in our hands is mm -hmm. because we went to the moon. Like you go to these places to learn things. And I think we have so much to learn. The, the One of the areas that I'm really excited about is if we could learn about how to keep human beings alive with scant resources on the moon, mm -hmm. on Mars, it's going to teach us so much about sustainability on Earth. You know, yeah. how do we uh, improve our lives dramatically? Because we learned how to keep human beings alive for long periods of time with very, very scant resources, and they had to recycle in some exciting yep. new way. I think that's... Yep. You know, that that reframing is helpful to people. This isn't about for the benefit of Mars. <laughs> this right. is for us. No, absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. Absolutely. Absolutely. There is so much. There's economic impact. The amount of people that get employed in this, right. you know, that's that is a, you know, very tangible. I mean, again, my, my career is supportive of this. And again, I pay taxes back in. That's, you know, kind of right. whatever. But, you know, it's a whole cycle you know, that that kind of feeds in and of itself, you know, and yes, a lot of technology that's out there does have its roots in, you know, space exploration and, and things over the last, you know, 40 or 50 years that people don't realize. There's a, a wonderful website that I'm, I'm blanking on the name, uh, but it is a, a website that NASA maintains about technology transfer. And I'm just blanking on what it is, but it's something like techtransfer.nasa.gov, but it's that's not it spinoff, spinoff.nasa.gov. That's what it is, where you can see, you know, all the different technologies. I think they even break it down by geographic region too. Mm. Like if there's a particular region of the country or state in, in the U.S. that is involved in producing X related to that. So really they, they are doing a lot of work to show the general public like the benefits benefit of all of this is immense. Like it is, you mm -hmm. know, I mean, especially when you think something like the internet, uh, you know, mm -hmm. what you think about our, our ability to compute. I, I read uh, once that the, the computing power that was available to, uh, to, to put, uh, you know, put human beings on the moon 
we can now contain in a Hallmark card, one of those Hallmark yeah. cards that, uh, yep. that that plays a note, you know, and sure. mm-hmm. <laughs> the fact that we have, the, you know, even in my own lifetime, like the computer I had when I was in college is mm-hmm. so pathetic compared to my phone now. This is so tiny. And this mm-hmm. is NASA work. This yeah. isn't just the private sector saying what, you know, they, they could have just mm-hmm. slapped fancy, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, graphics on the side of my gateway uh, computer. You know, here's cow print. I remember and, gateway. You know, yeah. And we, we'd, we'd go, oh, I have to have the new one. It looks fancier. Like, mm-hmm. no, the, the actual computing power was people who were saying, mm-hmm. but we need it to do new things. And doing new mm-hmm. things is exploration. Or unfortunately... It's war. And I would much rather have it come from exploration mm-hmm. than have it be motivated by war. Absolutely. Totally agree. Um, so, <laughs> uh, I, I well, you know, we could talk about this all day, but I do want to let yep. readers get to know a little bit more about you outside of work. So uh, sure. what has been pulling you away from your work in terms of pop culture lately? Okay. Well, so one of the things that I, I started doing a couple of years ago, because I need to make sure I'm getting my exercise in, Right. So I have a treadmill and to make sure I use it, I have a, I have actually, I, I bought like a small TV dedicated to the treadmill to make sure I do this. And at any given time, I, I have a show that I'm only allowed to watch if I'm on the treadmill. That's a good idea. So, so the idea is I find a show that is compelling enough that I want to be on the treadmill. So it was foundation until I caught up on foundation. Right. And again, half the balance, it was shows to watch with you know, my husband. So it would be for all mankind, except yeah. for I'm not allowed to cheat on, on that. Right. Um, so right now, uh, so Silo came out a few months ago. Oh, so good. Oh. And that came to me because somebody, a guest on this show recommended mm-hmm. the books. I read them. I'm just devoured. Yep. Them. They were so good. Oh, and yeah. then I found out they're making a show of this and mm-hmm. uh, was really pleased with that one. Yeah, I'd been following Hugh Howie for a while because he was originally, you know, again, an indie author like yeah. me. So his his story is very inspiring to me. So when I found so I read the books a long time ago. And when I found out they were coming out with the show. So for the long again, we have all these like choices of like streaming services. So for the longest time, I held off on getting Apple TV because, OK, so Silo came out. So Silo was my show for a while. Foundation was my show for a while. And then I was going through like all these other Apple shows, although I skipped everyone's like Ted Lasso. I've skipped that. Need, I don't know. Something do. about that doesn't like excite me. Um, but I found some other like interesting shows. There was one called Shrinking, which was just eight episodes. And it's like with um, Jason Siegel and Harrison Ford plays like the psychiatrist. Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, it's good. It was this good. is good. I've not checked it out yet, but uh, that's okay. one that my fiance has said that we should make one of ours that we watch together. I have heard oh, that. Oh, that, that, it's so good. And I like, I so wish like Harrison Ford as a psychiatrist existed in real life because I would <laughs> love him for him to be yeah. my, my therapist. But uh, so all I went through all these things and foundation and then I was like, okay, I need something new. Friend of mine recommended this and I don't know something about it just clicked and I'm, I'm most of the way through it. It's on um, HBO Max. It's called Barry. I've heard of it, but have not watched it. It's so Barry is basically a hitman who wants to become an actor. <laughs> That's which and, is brilliant. Yes, and and the thing is, you know, to be a kind of likable character, he's not just a hitman. He's someone coming out of the military who struggled to find his place back in society and wound up basically getting hired as a hitman because he has those skills. Right. So. And in, in theory, it starts out where he's only going after bad guys. So to make him, you know, you, you need him to be like a likable character. Um, of course, it things change. But yeah, so he like winds up in this like acting class because that's there's a guy there that's supposed to be his hit. And he's just like blown away, falls in love with it. And just, yeah, so it's, oh, it is so good and compelling and if I wasn't talking to you right now, I'd probably be on my treadmill trying to yes, watch, watch another episode and getting your steps. Like that is that's a <laughs> great getting idea. Getting my steps. That's a, I I have a treadmill. It is a dust collecting treadmill. I had a period of time I built a like a desk on it and I would write mm-hmm. on it. And so for a oh, while, wow. I, that was part of my writing practice was, you know, I'm going to get mm-hmm. my words and I'm going to get my steps. And I was good about it for a while. And boy, that has fallen off and I am feeling it. So I love that idea of this show is only something I can watch when mm-hmm. I'm on the treadmill. I, I will think about incorporating that. And maybe Barry is going to be the show for that. Um, it's, it's good. It's good. It's yeah. Good. So what else has been pulling you away from your work? Oh, gosh. Um, 
you know, the days just go so fast because, you know, we talk about work, we talk about my writing, but then I'm a mom of two kids. Mm. So I do, of course, when we're, you know, not working, not at school, not at other activities of spending time with my kids. And we, we all like to play games. So I have a pretty large collection of um, not just board games, but kind of like two to four player, various kinds of card games and strategy games. Like if you think about the old Othello game, we yeah. have that one, um, you know, Chinese checker, you like all these kinds oh, of games. Yeah. We have trouble, you know, um, cause my, my two kids are 13 and five. Oh, so yeah. I kind of have a, a range, yeah, but um, it was great. really funny. One of the ones that we just got, um, it was a Christmas present. It's cat monopoly. But instead of traditional money, you're trading cats. Oh, wow. So it's not you are a cat. You are no in the cat it's, business. It's not it's it's really funny and it's weird. One of the things I like about it, because my my younger son can play it, too. Be, um, there's only two denominations of co- of money. There's a one coin and a five. And actually, we found out uh, last year. So my older son is in love with Avatar The Last Airbender. Oh, I agree. So we have yeah. excellent taste. He made he made me watch it and yeah it's it's oh, it's absolutely good stuff. Well, so last year for Christmas I got Avatar Monopoly yeah. and discovered that you know in Avatar Monopoly they only have two denomination of money they have like a one a one yuan and a five yuan and discovered this was the perfect for my five year old to start playing yeah. because he can do that level of you know simple math and so it became a much more interesting game plus they have when you choose your piece you're a character and there's like special powers and stuff. So it mixes up the, you know, traditional monopoly while I kind of like it, it gets boring after a while, you know? So all these other like special monopolies that kind of change it up a little bit are kind of fun. Oh yeah. I think the fact that the people who made the original monopoly recognize Mm -hmm. it's a bad game. And so they're always (laughs) creating variations that make it a better, the variations folks out there don't play original monopoly, play the variations, their improvements. (laughs) So (laughs) in college, they're better games. Yeah. In college, me and my friends, we came up with a set, we made our own rules basically. And we called them crack monopoly. (laughs) It's a terrible name, but the idea is like, so it makes the game move a lot faster. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, so there some are variations the... where there you can, you know, mm-hmm. you can cheat and you're actually encouraged, mm-hmm. but they've figured out a punishment system to keep somebody yep. from just, you know, uh, my uh, fiance got for my son who is, you know, going to be 20 this summer. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but this fits his sense of humor very well. She got him Barbie Monopoly for Christmas and it, ha- <laughs> it has its own variation that is mm-hmm. more fun. So yeah, he, mm-hmm. he likes playing uh, Monopoly with his cousins. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. every time we get together, they, get out monopoly and i'm like but this is a poorly designed game <laughs> yeah the ending yep. is miserable well, and it goes on forever and so now yeah. they've taken to playing these variations and it's really fun the variations are a lot of fun we have we have at least half a dozen of them or more already yeah i think yeah, the, the star so, wars one wasn't different enough uh I right. had the star wars one and it was just okay well you know the, the place names have changed but it, you know well, it wasn't that significantly different but some of the new ones are really clever yeah, I have, you know, from like 20 years ago, I have a Star Trek Next Generation one and I have a Space Monopoly one. And they were essentially Monopoly. It's the same thing, just with the different place names. And that's just, again, it's still just Monopoly. But these new ones that are truly variations that they change up. And like, so in the Cat Monopoly one, there there is a clear end of the game. Because mm-hmm. each time you pass go, you have a cat fight. Ah. And there's a card for that. And there's only eight cards. Yeah. So basically like eight rounds of go, you're done. And the game, the game is done when the last cat fight is done. Yeah. So they recognized here's a flaw in our game. It could go on eternally mm-hmm. and miserably when one yep. monopolist already has, you know, it can become hyper-capitalism yes. <laughs> and it, you're just grinding <laughs> against uh, one person having all the resources. Uh, so yes, this yep. must have a time limit. That's that's yes. have you, have you and your kids discovered uh, exploding kittens? Oh yeah, we've got that. Yep, we've got yeah. that. We haven't actually played it in a while. Now it's, that I think about it, but again, it's because we have like we have right. really we do have so many games. Yes, but that one is another really fun, well designed mm-hmm. game. Like this yes, fun and yes. funny and has a limit. This is not going to go mm-hmm. on forever. Uh, but uh, yep. yeah, it's a kick. Yeah. So, what news story has been pulling you away from your work lately? Well, I have 
not last several years, unsurprisingly, I'm not, I'm not a fan of news. And actually it really started even before the last several years. Cause if I started paying attention, I just, I would, I'd be constantly catatonic. Mm-hmm. So I, I just can't do that. Um, you know, it, it doesn't improve my life. Um, but a few months ago, a friend of mine turned me on to something. It's a news, a daily newsletter called the 1440 daily digest, right. which I highly recommend and it's like just enough to keep me informed without being overwhelming. And also it is very neutral as in here's a summary of key stories that are happening and here's just the facts you need to know. And here's more, you know, links to more information you want to more. And they divide it up into like, here's the top stories. Here's some politics. Here's some um, business. Here's some sport, you know, like, and then some other just random miscellaneous links. So I can scan that every day and feel like I'm informed. Yeah. However, I do pay attention to space news quite a bit because, again, I'm a space geek. It's related yeah. to my job. So uh, I'm, I was very sad to hear about the Peregrine lander, that mission that was going to the moon. It was going to be the next lander from our country on the moon. And that uh, has not gone so well. Uh, so I've not, not heard what yeah. is the what is what got in the way. What uh, what is um, so after launching? I think there was a first a solar array deployment, uh, and then they were leaking some fuel. Um, so a, a series of things that seem to be at this point very quite unrecoverable. Yeah, um, which is which is a shame. Did you, you read know? about uh, that uh, NASA mission where they shot an asteroid? No, I mean they shot a a, a satellite and it hit an asteroid mm-hmm. like a bullet uh yeah. and that that i mean that's the kind of story i love and you can see video mm-hmm. of the impact but i mean mm-hmm. this was a bullet hitting a bullet like the, mm-hmm. the math involved here was just amazing uh and mm-hmm. it was just to like to see if it could be done uh so yeah i yes. love that science news yep uh, yep <laughs> yeah that's uh that's okay so so where do you go for your space news so there is a, a couple websites i check out spacenews.com uh, so, you know, spacenews.com, space.com and spaceflightnow.com. That one is more, that latter one is more focused on upcoming launches, mm-hmm. upcoming and recent launches specifically, where space news and space are a little bit more broad and they have different sections like commercial space, government space, uh, different stuff. And even I think they have like astronomy sections and yeah. yeah. Yeah, that would be cool because there have been some really phenomenal stories in astronomy too. With uh, with the mm-hmm. uh, what's the new satellite that has got the, such well, an incredible range? James Webb. Yeah, the Webb. Yep. Oh my gosh, those mm-hmm. photographs are just astounding. Yes. So yes, yeah, that that has been really exciting to see to see so far back. I mean, we're we're, mm-hmm. we're looking at history in a different way, and that's uh, mm-hmm. really cool. Um, so what about uh, hobbies? What do you, does, I mean, I don't know how you have time. <laughs> do you have any hobbies that pull you away from your writing? Well, I, I do. And one of the nice things about a lot of my hobbies are they are ones that like you can pick up and leave and pick up and leave. So like, I, I do love to paint. I paint mm. a lot, but now that, you know, I haven't painted in a year, <laughs> Yeah, you know, and that's okay. And I'll go through for stretches of time of not painting. And then like, I might have like a month or two where like, that's all I want to do in the evenings is paint. You know, so painting is a big one and just generally arts. I love arts and crafts. Um, I don't know if I can call gardening a hobby, something I do like every year, because I don't know. I some, I guess I feel somewhat obligated to garden. I don't I don't know what it's like. I'd call that a hobby. Yeah, but, I'm, I'm, I'm with you there. Yeah. Like I do it, but I, I, I love having the flowers i'm not particularly i do, i've done the vegetable garden thing uh, mm-hmm. but it's not uh you know i'll literally forget to eat the tomatoes that i've grown like most of the the flowers are are you know the the, the more fun part for me but even then i'm not particularly mm-hmm. knowledgeable about what i'm growing it is just oh yeah this is something that needs to be yep. done it's that time of year yep i'm essentially a, i would call it a minimalist garden is mm-hmm. i plant stuff and we see what happens. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. Um, so one of the things I always do on this show to kind of help readers get to know you is, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've scanned for some kind of like Rorschach kind of test. And one that mm-hmm. is fun is to think if you were a character in the Dungeons and Dragons universe, what would be mm-hmm. your race and class? Mm-hmm. So. I, I used to play Dungeons and Dragons. Again, not a huge surprise given my ge- kind of geeky-ish background. Uh, although not so much as adult. This was, for me, this was huge when I was like in junior high and high mm-hmm. school. And I had this one running character. Her name was Talira. 
It's like T apostrophe L E A R A. And I think she was either, I think she was an elf, maybe a half elf, but I think she was an elf. And I, I, and the name and the reason for elf was because I'm also a humongous, humongous Star Trek fan. And that was the closest thing you can get to a Vulcan ah. in the D&D world. You know, even though there's really not close at all, they both have pointy ears, you know. But Talira also was a nod to a lot of Vulcan names are T apostrophe. And so that's why I had chosen them. And so this is like back, we're talking like 1989, I probably created this character. And I was thinking, like, I, I do want to go find, like, the character sheet to remember all the details of it. Yes. I don't I have no idea where it is. It's in the house somewhere. <laughs> so what is the, um, the, the, but I think, you know, the, the, the Star Trek universe also creates mm -hmm. that same kind of, you know. Uh, so what is the appeal of Vulcans for you? Well, so I think that was more of a me in high school. Because mm -hmm. I, I certainly don't identify with Vulcans as much now, but... It just might have been because it was something different from being human that was pretty well thought out. Like mm -hmm. so, and again, this is the time when Next Generation was originally airing, and that's all we had was the original series and Next Gen. Yeah. Now that we have everything, we have a lot more well-developed things mm -hmm. to choose from. But back then, there you know there were just there wasn't much, and you know, of course Spock being a main character. Right. Um, you know, and the the whole idea of you know logic yeah. is, is very you know. Well, I mean, I named I, a, I use the word logic in my book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, what what about that appeal? What appealed to you, or or tells readers about you? Because I think that there is that there's a lot to plumb there in terms of why mm -hmm. does that you know logical way of seeing the world appeal? That's a, a really good question, and I don't know if I have a well thought out answer other than I, I and again maybe my answer is again me now versus yeah. i would never have thought of this as a high school student is i have have had over the years the opportunity to read a lot about stoic philosophy mm -hmm. which in a lot of ways is you know comes across to me as very similar oh, yeah. to our initial thinking about what Vulcans were intended to be. Because again, the Vulcans themselves have evolved and we've noticed that they're not all perfect. You know, like there's, we've seen chinks in that, like what seemed to be like this one amazing armor. Um, but if we go back to the old school imagining of Vulcan, where it is this like pure, like, you know, adherence to what is essentially a stoic philosophy. Yeah. And I think... If you nailed me to the wall and said, Adina, you have to pick one of the ancient philosophies to claim you want to follow for the rest of your life, I think it would be the Stoic stuff. Yeah. Um, the hardest part of that is my understanding of the Stoic philosophy is the uh, eat to live, not live to eat. And yeah i That's... like to eat <laughs> <laughs> that is not you so uh, on the fly i'm going to create a variation mm -hmm. here instead of your okay. elf character talira being ambushed okay. in the woods you are a vulcan you are traveling through the, the 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 galaxy and you are attacked but you're set upon by uh you know a klingon bird of prey that is in no way shape or form uh, uh capable of of you know uh, of actually competing with uh with you know the firepower of the vulcan ship that you have how do you respond to these klingon pests well if they can't compete with what i've got then i've i've got to just sit there and let them drain their phaser banks and truly do nothing and you know then go home <laughs> <laughs> yes. and, and tell my Vulcan buddies the about the highly illogical Klingons that chose to drain their phaser banks on my ship. <laughs> yes, and I, again, I think this reveals something about you. I think mm -hmm. there are people who would say, um, you know, obliterate them, uh, you mm -hmm. know, and, uh, you know, if that's not necessary, then it's not the logical choice. <laughs> they wouldn't be a good Vulcan, which again, right. there's, uh, you know, we, as we've seen now, Vulcans have variations like any other, you know, anything else. There's not one, it's not as one dimensional as was first presented. <laughs> right. 
Right. Excellent. Okay. So we're going to go to our ad break, but when we come back, I'm going to ask you what you've been daydreaming about lately. Special announcement time. Not a Pipe Publishing has always been committed to helping authors and readers find one another. Well, the show, which is all about helping readers get to know writers, just hit a milestone. 10,000 views on YouTube. So to celebrate, instead of charging authors to advertise their books on the show, I'm going to run your ads for free throughout 2024. If you want to make a 30 to 60 second video about your book, let folks know what it's about and where to find it. And don't forget your name and the title. Uh, I'll run one or two of those in our ad spot each week. Just send an MP4 file to the Not A Pipe email address in the show notes. Let's fix up some readers and authors into reader relationships. 2024. More readers, more writers, more books. Hi, my name is Marcella Stepper Darte, and my debut novel, The Hand of Fate by Marcella Stepper Darte, is an epic fantasy. The main character, Mira, is a foster kid who takes care of younger children, and soon she realizes she has to tap into powers she never knew she had so she can protect those she loves. This is loosely based on Norse mythology and started out with me asking the question, what if? The Hand of Fate is book one of a trilogy. Book two will be The Hand of Ice and book three, The Hand of Fire. Please go to my website, MarcellaStepperDarte.com to follow the links to Amazon so you can order your copy of The Hand of Fate by Marcella Stepper Darte. Welcome back, everyone. So, Adina, when you are daydreaming lately, what have you been daydreaming about? Well, this is just going to show, I think, how obsessed I am with writing. All my daydreams really have something to do with either the active project I'm working on or more likely one of the future projects that I mm. want to work on. And not a day goes by when I don't have to stop and take a note for one of these projects. Everything makes me think of them. Um, it's it's constant. And if it's not that, then I'm thinking about Star Trek. Yeah. How do you do your note-taking? I wonder. I, I, I think that's an... I mean, maybe we're getting dangerously close to process. No. About procrastination, but I, I, I am, I have become a much better note taker for my novels. Uh, what, what is your mechanism for your doing for doing that? Uh, so, a couple things. I, I do sometimes like to write by hand. So, no matter where I am, I, I do have either you know a little teeny notebook that I carry. You know, I have these little teeny notebooks that I carry around, or I've posted notes everywhere. But at the end of the day, I do need everything to be digital because mm -hmm. if I ever want to find anything later. So um, I use Evernote, not that the tool is, you know, means anything. People find value in whatever tool works for them. But a while ago, I became, I learned about this uh, guy's name's Diego Ortiz. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. He has a book out and a whole process called Building a Second Brain. Hmm. And it's a method for essentially, at least how I interpret it and I make use of it, is for digital note taking that doesn't just create a mess everywhere that is not useful. He has a, a way that you organize your basically projects and your folders into, you know, something from like most actionable to least actionable. And it's a whole process. So I adopted his his method. And it's not, um, and he even will go in and say, look, this is not like a, you have to do it exactly this. It's like, you can tailor it for you. So I have a slightly tailored version for me, but that's kind of what I do. So I have a, an area in my note-taking app set aside for what I call leading notes. The random notes that just happen, I just, I just shove them in there. And then once a week, I go through and I disposition them to where they really need to be. So smart. So when, when you were in school, uh, in, in your, uh, you know, pre-college uh, K-12 mm -hmm. education, did anyone ever teach you how to take notes? <laughs> I was taught nothing about how to be a good student. And as a result, I was a terrible student. <laughs> this is something that has been so remarkable to me. I, I'm a, a you know high school teacher. And when mm -hmm. I, we now teach students, you know, explicitly, these are some different note-taking strategies. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that has been so striking to me is 
nobody ever taught this to us. Nope. We got, nope. I got to college and it was like, you're going to take notes, right? And it was like, oh, I've got a notebook and I've got a pen. What does that I'm mean? A right. And I don't even know how to do this. And one of the concepts that I was never, that was never taught to me, even during my collegiate experience is if you just write them down in a notebook and you don't force yourself, you know, like on a regular schedule, like every week to go mm -hmm. back and revisit those notes, nothing gets put back into your brain. It's right. just, oh yeah, there, right. I've, I've exported this information onto this page and then I've lost it until finals time. And now I'm looking mm -hmm. at it, you know, but that process of, you know, going back and we, we try and teach students to go back, you know, every couple of days and go, mm -hmm. okay, what questions do I have about what I wrote, you know, and, and take mm -hmm. their notes in a different way. And so teaching students how to take better notes has made me such a better note taker <laughs> because right, right. nobody taught this to us. And and taking, you know, the random notes that I'm talking about is definitely different than if you're sitting in a lecture or a meeting taking notes. And I would, for anyone who's interested now these days, again, the magic of the internet and, and YouTube is there are a whole bunch of videos on how to take good notes during a meeting or during a lecture that if if you've never, if no one's ever seen that, they should absolutely check that out. But it's kind of funny because I went to my my 13-year-old, so he's in eighth grade, and I've asked him, I was like, have they told you anything about this? He, they have. Good. I, I think it's just still the bare bones. And I don't think he's, appre you know, he's 13. I don't think he's appreciating how important this is. And so I'm, I'm doing my best to kind of, you know, impress upon him a few things that I think will help him right, <laughs> in the future. Right. Uh, but of course, you know, like a lot of people, you still just got to figure it out kind of for yourself. Yeah, well, um, and, and it's like we were talking about with kind of the economics of space exploration. It's not until you realize how much you need it that it becomes valuable mm -hmm. to you, you know, yeah. but uh, well, later he's going to go, oh, wow, I'm really glad somebody taught me how to take these notes, uh, you know. Yeah. Of course, without the 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 you know the the absence of the experience of the absence of those notes, he might not realize how valuable they are. But boy, I should right. feel it. Like right. now, I can, you know, this fleeting idea comes to me, and it used to be, oh, I'll 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 jot that on, you know, whatever a post-it that I will lose. Like mm -hmm. that's not helpful, you know. But that process of going back through the notes and saying, okay, now how am I going to glean information from these mm -hmm. and rearrange it so that I actually remember it in that writing process has been so valuable. Yep. Yep. Well, and it's it's kind of funny because, you know, one of the things though, going back to that whole idea about the school and, you know, high school and, and college and such. And I, I was a terrible student, which a lot of people, when they think about aerospace engineering and stuff like that, they assume we're all straight A rocket scientists and we're not, we were not. And I was definitely not one of them, uh, which, which is in some way, like, People should understand if you're not a straight A student, it is not the end of the world. Right. You can still do these things. But on the other hand, you know, we do want, you know, students to succeed in school. And note taking was only one piece of the thing. Like I, I probably had like five issues. And the, the problem was at the time, I had no idea why like I was struggling. And I was one of those in high school like honors AP students, but like at the bottom of the class or, and my grades were completely and utterly erratic and we couldn't figure out like why, like I was clearly, it was not an intelligence problem. So like, why then can't you just make yourself instantly get straight A's? And when I eventually went back for a master's degree, when I was 42, that's when I started my master's degree, that's by then I had figured it out and I knew how to actually succeed right. in the classroom setting. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's one of the things, I mean, we we tend to say to, you know, for, for the sake of resource allocation and that kind of thing, it is easiest for the adults to say, all let's treat all students like they're in the same place. So they're all 14 mm -hmm. and therefore they're all going to take algebra one. But mm -hmm. that is not the way human beings actually are. And, right. you know, I've, I've, I've talked to my colleagues who, you know, especially in math, where it is, uh, you know, very, uh, you know, staged. And they'll say to me very candidly, you know, this is horribly unfair. We're, we're making this this young person feel like you can't do this. When, in fact, mm -hmm. what we really should be saying is this isn't where you're at yet. And right. two years from now, you may flourish and we may, you may be the, you know, an absolute whiz. Uh, one of my colleagues, uh, who's now one of our administrators is a brilliant math teacher. Uh, but that was because when she was in high school, she struggled and it wasn't until she was in college and she flourished. And then people said, 
wow, you're really good at this. And she went mm -hmm. on to get her master's in mathematics. And, you know, whereas a lot of folks, you know, get their master's in teaching, she got it in the, the math itself. She loves mm -hmm. it. She's very, very good at it. But it was because there was this kind of, she could recognize, oh, I wasn't there when I was, you know, 14 right. yeah. years old, but I love this and I'm talented at it. So yeah, I think, uh, uh, you know, giving people the freedom to say, this just, th this isn't that you're bad. This is, this isn't where you're at yet. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. I don't know where education is going to go in the future, but uh, what we're doing is not sustainable. It, it, I think we've been demonstrating how unsustainable it is. And, you know, unfortunately, as a parent, all I can do is just help my kids get through. And I've been knock on wood fortunate that, you know, so I've got an eighth grader and he's we, we've had no challenges. He's been just he's been fine, um, actually, to the point where on the flip side, I worry about when the day comes that he does start to struggle. Yes. Is he going to be able to deal with that? And we actually dealt with that uh, slightly this year because he's actually ahead in math and he was doing the most advanced thing that's available to him now. And it started to be a struggle and coaching him through that a little bit has been interesting. Yes, but then on the, I've got a struggle is important like that. You know, that, yes. that it will not all come easily. I, I have students every once yes. in a while where I'm going, this is the reason you are struggling is because it's always come easily before. Right. Mm -hmm. And they're like, Oh yeah, you're right. You know, like okay, well, this is this is an important part of the learning process. It's not right. always and will they have the skills to know what to do at that point and and everything? And then so I have a kindergartner, you know, who just started too, and so the same thing. And and in a lot of ways, I think um, he's going to be similar to his older brother because they're both from I think from that academic y thing. They're both similar enough to me ish. Yeah that I can understand and kind of like, it's almost like sometimes I can see how their brain is working when they're working out, you know, problems. So on one hand, pretty fortunate there. Um, but, you know, they're still young. We've got, got many years to go. We'll see what happens. I was talking to a friend who's a professor at uh, Willamette University, and he said the, the problem with education is not the problem with education. It's that we can't agree on what education is for. That's uh, a good one. Yeah. It's, you know, if, if, if we said, we are going to create a system to create educated, critical thinking in, for the sake of being a citizen. We would create mm -hmm. a school system that works one way. We are going to create vocational education that makes people good workers. We are going to make, but because we've got, you know, these disparate needs, mm -hmm. we are all over the place because what are we here for? And that's a real challenge. You know, what, what mm -hmm. is the, the number one role of schools? In some cases, for some of my students, it's to provide them with food. Like, the, yeah. you know, it has become the, the, the place where they are safe and the place where they are fed and the place, but it, we cannot d d decide what is the, the objective of education. Yeah. And I think yeah. that is going to be a challenge going forward. And and as a, a parent, you know, you know, different parents have different uh, levels of investment in their kids' education, right? Because there's everything from uh, hands-off, not caring, not necessarily because they don't care, but maybe they just don't, you know, they're working three jobs or, you know, everything from that to uh, the other end of the spectrum, kind of what we think of as a tiger mom. And I, I think I'm sort of a little bit in, in between. But one of the things that I've struggled with is, you know, I, I am the parent, so I, I believe that I am ultimately responsible for my kids' education at this point. But what we, what I ran into this year with the math with my kid, and one of the reasons why I let him do the advanced stuff, you know, so that he, he had, whatever tests they had done in school said that, yep, he can do this. Uh, but one of the reasons why I agreed was because, well, at home, he's got a, effectively a built-in math tutor, right. right? So I'm here. But now when I've, there were a couple parts. So he's doing algebra. There's a couple parts he was struggling with. And when I was trying to tutor him, it's like he does not respect me as a teacher. <laughs> so he won't listen to me. It's like, no, really, I, I know a few things. Yes. You know I know. So why are you not listening to me? Because like listening to me as a mom is not the same thing as listening to someone as an educator. And I've been finding that incredibly frustrating. <laughs> Oh yeah, uh, you know, as as an English teacher, and my son would come home, and I would say, "I can help you. I can, you know, I can edit mm -hmm. that essay. I can help, you know." But different roles, right? You yeah. know, know your dad, and I don't want, you right. know, and, and so that tension of, 
are you willing to let me slip into my teacher role? Is that comfortable for you? Or is that uncomfortable because you're seeing me in this different, this different role? Uh, right. And so, yeah, that, that is a very interesting thing to navigate. Well, imagine how much uh, trickier it is when you are the teacher. I got to teach my son in a couple of classes and uh, it ended up being a really wonderful experience, but it was awkward at first where he was, he, he would <laughs> raise his hand and we had to like have a conversation about what are you going to call me in class? And he settled on teacher dad. He'd go, teacher dad. <laughs> so, That's yes, interesting. It is, it is interesting. Yeah. My my dad was a, wound up, um, was at community college and taught some math. So he was, I never took a class from him, but I remember there was one year, uh, I guess it was my freshman year of college. I was on spring break, but where he was teaching, they were not on break. So I showed up to his calculus class and just to be kind of like as a student. And what was really weird there was during the break, hearing all the other students talk about Professor Mignona. And this was a community college where none of these kids wanted to be taking calculus. Yeah. <laughs> and they, they seem to take it out on the teacher. Yes, yes. It is, it is your fault calculus is difficult, Professor Mignona. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, but when you were a kid, did you look to your dad for tutoring? Um, I, I My memory is my dad. So my dad was an engineer. Uh, he didn't actually get into teaching and working at the community colleges till I was like in third or fourth grade. And he didn't actually teach math. He was more in, um, it was like more of a civil engineering because he was a metallurgist by his oh. degree uh, until I was, you know, much older. Um, and I, I feel like I have memories in elementary school where he was just just normal, like parent helping a little bit. And I do remember having some clashes where- right. Like he would explain something to me and I was was not quite getting it. And, you know, it turned into like a different kind of a fight than had he been like an actual teacher. But what was really, really funny is, you know, so I always assumed or believed he was excellent at math across the board. So when I go to college, I take Calc 1, I take Calc 2, I take Calc 3, I take Diff EQ. And now at this point, I'm an adult and I can actually ask my dad for help and listen to him, you know, like, we're not going to have those kinds of fights we did when I was a kid. So, uh, dad, can you help me with my diffy Q? <laughs> nope. <laughs> and that's when I found out, even though he had been teaching calculus back when he was a student, he had to repeat some math class. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yes. Yes. The, yeah. Yeah, the, that, that is, isn't that fascinating when, you know, as adults, we learn, oh, my, mm-hmm. my parent is uh, a human being as well. <laughs> that's, yes, yep. that's, uh, yeah. That is, that's great. So uh, changing the subject dramatically, mm-hmm. but uh, what is in your to uh, to be read pile? What what are you looking forward to that readers, that our, our viewers should uh, look forward to as well? Oh my gosh. I got a, a very, 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 very long list. And lately I've been seeing some memes on Facebook uh, that allude to the idea of it's okay to buy a bunch of books that you're not going to read right away that maybe, you know, the right time and place. And I love that because that, that makes my, you know, uh, it takes the pressure off of that list, but I have several Star Trek novels that I want to read. <laughs> um, I also have, oh gosh, I got, you know, I have this one book called pity the reader by Kurt Vonnegut and someone else. And I, I think it is intent. Honestly, I just bought it on a whim from the bookstore. I think it is intended for, you know, writers and would be writers on, ah, on some I craft. I have not heard that he wrote a, pro, a, a writing book. I am going to. I hadn't either, which is why I'm, I was kind of like, this is, this is interesting. And it was Kurt Vonnegut and uh, there's a, with another author too. Uh, but yeah, and I've got other like science fiction novels. And somebody else threaded them together because mm-hmm. I don't know that he ever, yeah, that's, but I'm going to look for that. Pity yeah. And I, I tell people, I usually actually read about 75% nonfiction and 25% fiction. And so the book that I just started on, and at any given time, I have at least an one audible book, a digital book and hard copy. Cause again, you never know what right. situation. So the, I just today started when I was driving in the car, uh, a new Audible book. And that's usually when I do the, the, listen listen to audiobooks. Um, something about the periodic table. But it's like it's like the a micro history. And I really love like these like I call them micro histories ever since I was at a Barnes and Noble and that's actually the table display they had. They called it micro histories. And there was like a book called Salt, which is like just the history of salt. It's and fascinating. I like yeah. yeah, I like those kinds of things. Um so there's one just on the periodic table that I just like seriously listened for two minutes. 
Yeah, that's cool. There's I mean, I, so much. There's I, just I so love much that. good I, stuff. I've always thought you could do a marvelous entire year of uh, like third or fourth grade curriculum just on ice cream. Mm -hmm. I mean, the oh. history of ice, how the Romans mm -hmm. were bringing it down from the Alps, you know, how mm -hmm. the, how chemically what is going on. You could make some ice cream over the course of the year. But, you know, the, yeah, I mean, something like the history of salt is fascinating mm -hmm. you can learn yep. so much about history and i think learning about the history of science through the periodic table i'm, I'm going to recommend that to some of my science colleagues too it's a different way of looking at uh mm -hmm. you know kind of your basic science but it might really engage some students so yeah yeah that's yeah. cool um so where can our, our listeners find you online okay uh well my website is adina m a d e e n a m dot com and and, and from there you can pretty much you know yeah so from from there you can pretty much find uh where i am i post and i'm most active on facebook and and linkedin believe it or not and while i'm on like you know twitter and blue and threads um really I, i'm most active on facebook and linkedin okay and now substack because Substack has a notes feature too, which is some kind of interesting hybrid of how Twitterish kind of works and things, and yeah. Substack, so, Substack notes. Too. So, but is this on your own Substack or is this on? Uh... Ah, on my own Substack. I recently migrated. I do have a email newsletter that I put out every other week, and again, you can find the sign up. It's called um, the email newsletter is called Beyond the Droid. and so that's on sub. So I just migrated to Substack, and then I'm making use of features like their notes. Okay, very cool. Yes, yeah, so we'll we will put we'll have to make sure to get links mm -hmm. to to those in the uh, in the show notes, and we'll share those out so people can follow your Substack mm -hmm. there. So before we get to our message, our our, our sign off advice for for the world, uh, I've got some folks to thank. So uh, thanks to the artist Max Oakland who reached out and provided one of his songs for our intro song. I prefer the dusk. Let Max know you like it and follow him at Twitter at Max Oakland with three D's. And thanks to Halizna CCO for their song Kids for the ad break. If you're in a band and you'd like your song used on the show, I would love to highlight a listener's work like Max's song. So email that to me. And uh, thanks to Doug, the producer, for making this show sound good and taking the blame when it doesn't. And I cannot forget to mention Writers Not Writing is a production of Notapi Publishing. So please go to notapipublishing.com. Check out the amazing books written by writers who didn't procrastinate too much. If you like this show, rate and review it wherever you found it. And please check out Adina's Lunar Logic, which comes out in just uh, five, six days, seven days. Uh, so a week from now, get your copy of Lunar Logic. Tell a friend about it. Give it a review. It makes a big difference. Uh, so uh, uh, check that out. And of course, click the little uh, thumbs up for this show as well. It really is very helpful. So uh, Adina, what is your what would be your advice for our listeners going into their week? Just something that they can take with them that they should remember for the week. Well, if you are a writer, then I would say write. And that's the the only thing that you should do related to writing is is write or write first, not last. Yes. If they're not a writer, then very similar, very similar. I want to echo what you said. Support a writer. You know, I'm hoping you're that means you're a reader yeah. and then support a writer. Yes. Yes. That I mean, you know, and there are so many different ways. It's it's you know, it's not just buying books. One of the challenges for us is we don't produce a lot of products. And so if somebody mm -hmm. is saying, I want to support Adina, they can buy your books and then they're done. But there are all these other ways. Give that review. Tell a friend about a book. It mm -hmm. makes a huge difference. Um, yes. I also remind the listeners every week that a book without spaces would be gibberish and our lives need spaces too. So don't forget those spaces. And third, no matter how much you procrastinate, we're still proud of you. If I take my time.